This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. On this week's podcast, we're bringing you a special talk with Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award-winning author Robert Caro, whose book, The Power Broker, Robert Moses and the Fall of New York, was hailed by Time Magazine as one of the 100 top nonfiction books of all time and is considered one of the most revealing biographies of the 20th century. In this conversation with essayist and columnist Frank Rich, Caro talks about power, corruption, and the men who shaped the urban landscape of modern-day New York City. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, I'd love to start talking, Bob, about your time at the library. How how did you make the power broker here? What was the experience? What do you remember? Well, what, what I remember was I'd been working on the power, Einer and I were, had been working on the power broker for about three years for what we used to call the world's smallest advance. It was actually $5,000, <laughs> of which they had given me 2500 in advance. And we were living in the Bronx, and I had no place to work. So a superintendent had given me a sort of a cinder block space in the basement of his building. But the thing that was really hard was I was using a lot of materials from the library in the main reading room. And you had to give them back at the end of each day. And the next morning, you had to fill out the, the slips and get the books again, which always took about 45 minutes. So you, this was a tremendous waste of time. When all of a sudden I read an article in New York Magazine about the Frederick Lewis Allen Room, which was, had spaces for 12 writers, and it said the only requirement was that you have a contract, and I remember the phrase, it didn't matter how small, <laughs> <laughs> from a publisher. So I applied and uh, got into the Allen Room and basically wrote the last four years of the book there. And did you keep a... Were you required by the Allen Room or by your own internal clock to keep uh, an, an exact schedule? How did you, or did you come in just every day and keep like certain hours and the room was open to you at, at all times? Well, you know, the library then was not this wonderful, it was broke, you may, right, yeah. you remember that. So the hours were short, they were like 10 to about five. Right. And I think they were closed every Thursday, as, as I recall. So I like to get to work early. And uh, one day I found that there was a side entrance to the library on 40th Street. And if I just walked in as if I belonged there, <laughs> the guard would let me in. So I used to start early in the morning. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> You've been a hell of a terrorist. If you've chosen. Um, what uh, I've discovered in research, and of course many journalists discover this, that there are often obstacles placed in the way of someone who wants to get a hold of documents of prominent people like a Robert Moses in terms of getting permission, even if they might be residing at an institution like this. Did you have any of those problems? I, I didn't, well, I had a lot of problems. You know, Robert Moses uh, wouldn't let me see any of his papers, or, you know, for a long time he 
put out the word that nobody should talk to me. I, I remember what he, he said, I won't talk to you, my family won't talk to you, my <laughs> friends won't talk to you. And then he had this great phrase, Frank, which I don't quite remember, but the essence was, anyone who ever wants a contract from the city or state won't talk to you. Oh, I love it, I love it. <laughs> and he said, and, you, and of course, you can't see my papers. He had the papers, he had somehow gotten the courts to hold that the papers of his public authorities were as private as the papers of a private corporation. So I was having a lot of trouble getting, but when I came to this library, I found that they did have all his brochures and his uh, notes and all for the two World's Fair and many of his projects were here. All you had to do was fill out a pink slip and they would be delivered to the Allen Room. Yeah. And I guess gradually people did had to start to talk, and he and he of course he talked to you as well. Oh, eventually, yes, eventually he, you know, he had always he had prevented any biography in all his years. Like Amazing. when I started, he had been in power for like forty years, and many writers had tried to do biographies, and famous writers who had gotten big advances, and he had stopped every one. I think basically by saying what he said to me, you know, which made it all seem sort of daunting. Um, and uh, I, I forget exactly what no, you just, put. just, and so, but, um, well, I, I want to go actually to talk about the tactile issue of the documents that you could find. Okay. When people, when I feel, I don't want to sound like an old fogey, but I feel that some serious young people who want to do work in the vein that, that you do it, do not understand what it's like to have in your hands an actual document yes. that was, that figures in the story of whatever history you're writing. And there's no way to summon that up digitally. Could you talk, I've certainly, I, including at the, uh, the Performing Arts Library where I researched a book for, for a year uh, up at Lincoln Center, that, the, the ecstasy of handling someone's letter, somebody's, you know, ledger book or what? Could you talk about that a bit? Sure. Well, it's, so it's fresher in my mind. So I'll talk about Lyndon Johnson. So when I was a reporter, I had this old editor who said, never assume a damn thing, turn every page. So when I was down at the Johnson Library, I remembered that. And uh, when I was doing my first volume, I, I, was, I said, well, there, whatever the number of boxes were. I said, this is manageable. If, we, if, I, if I and I stay here long enough, we can turn every page. So at this time, those of you who have read the book, and if you haven't, the test is Tuesday. Give <laughs> <laughs> a week. You, you see, Lyndon Johnson is this young congressman. He goes to congressman, he's 28, and he's a all of us, and he, you can see he's a, from the letters in the Johnson Library and the memos, etc. You can see that he has no power because when he's writing letters to a committee chairman, it's always, can I have a few minutes of your time? All of a sudden that changes, and it changes in very specifically in the month of November 1940. All of a sudden the letters are coming the other way. Committee chairman, powerful congressman are writing to Lyndon Johnson, can I have a few minutes of your time? And I had no idea what had changed. And I was interviewing at that time elderly people of power who had been in power when Johnson was there in 1940. And one of them was a guy named Tommy the Cor Corcoran. Yep, His name right. was Thomas Corcoran, I don't know. 
And he, was, he would always talk to me, quite frankly, and I asked him what had changed in this month. And he said, he used to call me kid, money kid, money. <laughs> but you're never going to be able to write about that kid because you're never going to find anything written down. And for some time, I believed that that was correct. And I wasn't ever going to be able to really document what had happened. And then, and I knew what had happened from interviews. What had happened was John, Lyndon Johnson was a political genius. And a genius means seeing something where no one else sees it. And he's desperate to get power in the House of Representatives, and he has none. And he suddenly realizes, in a stroke of genius, that he does have something that no one else has. He knows two groups of people. One are the Texas oilmen and contractors, most notably a firm called Brown and Root, that want favors and tax breaks and the oil depletion allowance from the federal government and are willing to give cash in the, in the form of campaign contributions to get this influence. And he also is, for, and they are all conservatives, reactionaries. They are uh, the, the uh, Texas regulars. They hated blacks, they hated Jews, they were, the, they were far right. But Johnson also knew the liberal congressmen from the North and the Northeast and the Northwest who needed campaign contributions. If he could make himself the only conduit between the money of Texas and the liberals of the North, he would have influence, and he does that. He persuades Brown and Root and the other contractors to give only through him, and everybody had to go through him. Now, I knew this, but I couldn't prove it. But I'm saying, well, I'm turning every page, and all of a sudden, in the, in in a file folder that had nothing to do with campaign financing or anything else, I can't remember the, the title right. of it now, there is this telegram from George Brown, the president of Brown and Root. Lyndon, it's in, it's in October 1940, and the, the telegram says, Lyndon, the checks are on their way. Uh, <laughs> and then in another file folder, which was also has some misleading label. I found the most amazing document. I'll take just a couple of oh, minutes please. and tell you what it is, because it's one of the most amazing things I ever found. John Connolly, who was later we, we knew as Secretary of the Treasury, um, was his administrative aide at that time. And I think it was Connolly who typed four typewritten sheets. And what they, on the left-hand column, was the name of the congressman who had asked Lyndon Johnson for campaign contributions. In the next column is what he wants the campaign contributions for. Lyndon, if I have one more round of ads, I can beat this guy. Lyndon, we need more money for poll watches. The amounts are real. And then the third column is the amount that they ask for. And the amounts in terms of politics today are so small. They're like $1,000 or $1,500 or $500. But there's also a fourth column. In the left-hand margin, in Lyndon Johnson's handwriting, he would write, if he was giving the congressman the exact the amount of money he asked for, he would write, OK. If he was giving part of the money, he would write, OK, in the amount. OK, 500, OK, 1,000. But sometimes he would write, no, he wasn't giving him money. And sometimes he would write, no, out. So I asked John Connolly, what did no out mean? And Connolly said he was never getting money from Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson never forgot anything. 
So at the end, by the end of this campaign, November 3rd, 1940, everyone in the Congress knows that the place to go for money is Lyndon Johnson, and he has power. So when you talk about, when I, you, you know, the, the tactile experience of finding papers, actually having this in your hand, you know, is wonderful. Yeah. And was that at the Johnson Library? Yes, yes. And now, what was, you had your own ins and outs with the Johnson Library during the course yes. of this project. Could you give us a sort of precy of what happened, what changed, what changed their attitude towards you, if you know, and, and just how, it, how, how that relationship worked over the years you've been working on, on this project? Well, it's changed back and forth. <laughs> Long, when I started, um, the Johnson people were all cooperative with me. Long before I published anything, Frank, this changed, and the library became very high. The director of the library then sat in an office that was not very large, was at the size of this stage. And here is his desk, and on that wall is a photo, a floor-to-ceiling photograph of Lyndon Johnson <laughs> facing him. So he was a great admirer of Lyndon Johnson. And, and I think what happened, I later, I later asked people what had happened, and they said, well, you know, when you came down and you said you would check out, I think I said something like, I'm not trying to do a favorable book or an unfavorable book right. on Lyndon Johnson, but I have to tell you, um, I check out every story that I'm given. I don't think they had really believed that. I don't think anyone had ever checked out their stories. When they realized someone was going around Texas and actually asking, is this true, or how that happened, I think they, that was the beginning of the hostility. Um, and it's a huge library. You know, if you don't know where something is, it's really hard to find it. They say now, if you walked into the Johnson Library, I don't know, maybe some of you have been down there, you come into the building, and you, at the top, bottom floor is a museum, and you walk around a corner, and there's this very broad and tall flight of marble steps. And at the top is a glass wall, and behind it are what you looks like four stories of red buckram boxes with a gold seal, each with a gold seal on it. They are the papers of Lyndon Johnson. The, the seals are in 24 karat gold. It's the presidential seal. They say they have 44 million documents there. Um, they go back certainly longer than the length of this room. So really, if you're a human being, you, you, you're really never going to get to look at all of them. And you, if, if something is not listed in the finding aids in the correct way, it's going to be very difficult yeah. to find it. I'll give you one example. So John Connolly was cooperating with me, and we'd actually become very friendly. And I asked him something, well, about the same subject to stay on, on fundraising. And I would say, well, how did you do it after Johnson got power and he was in the Senate? And Connolly would say, well, you know, I did it with lists. And I said, well, what did you mean by this? He said, well, let's say, Lind he called them Lyndon. He said, well, let's say Lyndon needed $100,000, the campaign contributions, in a hurry. I would give him a list of 10 people who would each give $10,000 just for a telephone call, and I would put down in the right, what is the reason that they would give this money? I got you a bank charter, I got you a, a, a television license. If he needed a million dollars, I would give him a list of whatever, 10 right. people who would each give $100,000. So I said, well, 
And I had been looking for proof of this stuff for a long time, and the library had said they did, they were nowhere in the library was there any of this stuff. So I said to uh, Mr. Connolly, well, where was this kept in the office? And he said, well, there was this safe next to Johnson's uh, other assistant, who was named Walter Jenkins. There was a safe next to his desk in which the most sensitive documents were kept, and these were kept in that safe. I said, well, were they kept in a file folder? And he said, oh, yes. And I said, well, what was the title of the file folder? And he said, John's List. <laughs> <laughs> so I then went back to the, to the director of the library. This was a very unpleasant experience. And said, is there anywhere in this library a file folder labeled John's List? And in the next half hour or so, there on my desk, the file folders were delivered. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I want to go um, down another, uh, uh, on another topic that I think that people uh, would love to hear about. One, um, you do this incredible reporting and research uh, you know, over a lifetime, but I, but I think anyone who's read any of your books is equally da dazzled, not just by the information, but by the way it's turned into literature, into narrative literature. Um, <laughs> When I was in college, one of the best teachers I, I uh, ever had was a, a very good biographer whom you may have known, Justin Kaplan. I did know him slightly. Yeah, and, and, and he, he, um, he's no longer alive, but he, he had won the Pulitzer Prize for Mr. Mr. Twain and uh, Mark, uh, Mark Clemens, uh, Sam Clemens, or Mr. Clemens and Mark Twain. His, it was like the first, it was a brilliant book. It had just been published around the time he taught me. At the same time, Carlos Baker, who was, a, I think, a professor at Princeton, yeah. published uh, an enormous biography of Ernest Hemingway, about the size of the power broker. And Kaplan had us read it, and it was a huge bestseller, got a lot of claim as exactly not what, what not to do in writing a biography, because as he said, you read the 800 pages, and you know exactly how many fish Hemingway caught on any given day, or, or, or what his diary said, but you came away with no sense of him as a person, even though the fact collecting was assiduous um, and scholarly in the case of Baker. You did not make that mistake, to, to put it mildly. How did you, you were a newspaper reporter, how did you learn, if, there, if that's the right verb really, how did you figure out how to write narrative, non-fiction narrative the way you do? It's a page turner, characters come alive, people keep going. Well, that's a terrific, thank you for the compliments. Well, it's, it's, oh, a, it's, yeah, it's, it's a terrific it's question. Well, the moment that it happened, actually, see, everyone was, I had this very small contract from a publisher who really wasn't interested in the book. And he would keep saying to me, like when I would ask for the other half of my advance, say, you know, nobody's going to read a book on Robert Moses. He used to say, you have to be prepared for a very small printing, you know. And I'm thinking, well, I really want people to read this book because I think it's something that people should understand. Here, we all believe in a democracy that power comes from being elected, from the ballot box. But I was finding out that here was this man who was never elected to anything. And he had more power than anyone who was elected, more power than any mayor, 
more power than any governor, more power than any mayor and governor combined. And he held this power for 48 years, almost half a century. And with it, he shaped our city. And I remember thinking, I have to write an introduction to this book that's going to make people understand why they should read about Robert Moses. This it sounds, I, w I worked over and over unsuccessfully trying to figure out how to do that. I, well, I'll tell you, I, I remembered reading the Iliad in college. And you know, those of you who remember it, he lists the nations who came to, the, to attack Troy, and he lists the ships that came, the names of the ships and the names of the heroes. And they're long lists, and they have this incredible power. And I said, well, I wonder, I wonder if I could do it with lists. I said, instead of just saying that Robert Moses built 627 miles of road, suppose I list the roads. Suppose I say he built the Bruckner Expressway, the Sheridan Expressway, the Van Wyck Expressway, the Major Deegan Expressway. Say, maybe that will give his accomplishment the weight it deserves. Then I was thinking, and what if I did it in a kind of rhythm so that it would catch the reader up the name? So for I remember a long, over and over again, writing these names in different order, you know? And to try, I don't say that I succeeded, but it was part of the thing that I tried to do. I said, it can't be like a newspaper article because nobody's gonna read it. Nobody knows who Robert Moses is and nobody really cares anymore. I have to do it through the writing. Does that answer your yeah, question? Yeah, it does. Okay. Um, and, and, I, and I get the feeling a lot of trial and error and a lot of experimentation with your own muse, as it were. Robert Moses today, people, your, your book has remained in print, popular, read. When pe what's the, what are the most interesting reactions you hear uh, uh, today from younger readers, if you hear any, uh, who, for whom Moses is, might as well be in ancient times now that, that, that not only not never heard in, what 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 do what do they find in the book in his character in the story that they take away do you think well you ask terrific questions uh, Sorry. <laughs> the, the the remark that i hear a lot is that these aren't really book about Robert Moses or Lyndon Johnson right. but stay on the power. This isn't really about Robert Moses, it's about power. How power really works in this, not what we learn from uh, class, class, from, right. from textbooks, but the roar, you know, well, what the kids say to me is, this is about how power works and it seems to work the same way in New York. And that I came to see, that was what I was trying to do, you know, to write books not about Robert Moses or about Lyndon Johnson, but about power, how they exist. If you pick the right man, of course, you have to pick someone, a way of talking about it is to say, to pick someone who's done something that no one else has done and then analyze how he did it. Like Robert Moses, as I said, was never elected to anything, but he got enough power to do this. Only he did it. There's never been another figure like him in American history. Lyndon Johnson, the thing that, so all the, oh, so all the time, can I tell an anecdote? Of course. Okay. <laughs> so in order to get enough money to finish the power broker, I had to sign a, a, a two book contract to do a biography, to finish the biography of Moses, and then to do a biography of Fiorello LaGuardia. 
But while I was writing The Power Broker, I came to realize two things. One, I really didn't want to do a biography of LaGuardia because I've never been able to stand doing something over again once, yes. once I've done it. And, and so much of the LaGuardia story was in The Power Broker. The other thing was, this book was really about municipal power, urban power, how power works in cities. What I really would like to do next is do it, do national power. And if I can find the right man, it has to be someone like Moses who did something that no one else did. So the thing that attracted me to Lyndon Johnson wasn't at first his presidency. It was when he was Senate Majority Leader, you know. So for a hundred years, you had the days of Webster, Clay, and Calhoun. That's the 1850s. And then for a hundred years and more, the Senate didn't work. It was the, basically the same dysfunctional mess right. that it is today. Lyndon Johnson becomes majority leader in January 1955, and he stays through the end of 1960. And for far, those six years, the Senate works. It is the center of government creativity. It's not Eisenhower's civil rights bill. It's Lyndon Johnson's civil rights bill. It's writing its own legislation, basically, and passing it. He leaves, and in one instant, the Senate and has remained to this day, unfortunately, right. the same mess as it was before. So how did he do it? He was the so. I thought no one would give me a contract to do that. That I was tied into this contract to do the LaGuardia book. Right. But I desperately wanted to do a Lyndon Johnson book. It's, but I, and then I got a call from my editor uh, Bob Gottlieb, who said, basically, he said. Uh, now, Bob, he says, I'd like you to come in and talk to me. I have something I want to talk to you about. And he says, and I know your famous temper. Bob and I had had a lot of fights over editing the book. He said, I know your famous temper. I remember he said, but I want you not to say anything until I finish with what I want to tell you. And he said, you know, when I came in, he said, you know, Bob, I've been thinking. I don't think you should do a biography of Fiorello LaGuardia. I think you should do a biography of Lyndon Johnson. That's great. <laughs> by, by the way, for the record, we should clear up that Bob Gottlieb, who actually also edited my first book before he left uh, book publishing, um, is not the editor oh, who originally no. said no oh, one's sorry. interested in Robert Moses. Oh, oh sorry. No, yeah, I, I, I should have that. said that. I changed. I was able to change publishers after about three years. Yeah. Well, I have to say though, my advance from Bob Valley was seventy-five hundred dollars. But didn't change that that much. That, that house. Um, one of the things um, I felt that that you've done. Uh, we, we talked about this once. I don't know whether in public or private. In, in my view, which I think you concur with, there's, um, there's not really a great biography of John Kennedy. And I frankly felt that in Kennedy's intersection with Johnson, in your work, it's the, it's the, best, it's, it's the best treatment of Kennedy I've ever come across anywhere and where he comes, comes alive. The one other powerful figure, to me, more interesting than Kennedy, at the Johnson level in terms of fascination, I'm just wondering, what you would think of him as a subject is Nixon, who's sort of the dark, the, the dark side of some of the same period, as Johnson, of course, is the dark and light side. Would, would Nixon have ever interested you as a character if you hadn't alighted on Johnson? Yeah, well, well Nixon is a fact. Yes, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I won't get to do it, but you really say, you know, Nixon, you encounter him. When you're doing, uh, 
if you're interviewing senators from that period about Lyndon Johnson, so often you hear people say something like, I hated Nixon. Sam Rayburn, who was the Speaker of the House, once said, Richard Nixon is the only man I ever hated. So, you know, I've always wanted to know more about Nixon. Right. It's, um, now, you recently did an interview with the Paris Review where the, the interviewer said, not incorrectly in my view, that there's enough material in the remainder of Johnson's life for your current volume to, to be four volumes on its own. What do, you, what, do you, what, what do you say to that? It's incredible, <laughs> including, by the way, uh, it must be a, when, I don't know if you're there yet or not, and I'm not asking that, but the loss of power with Johnson must be an incredibly elegiac, fascinating end of the cycle, I assume. Well, you really, with the, the, yeah, to take the second thing. Sure. First, it is the saddest, most poignant thing when Johnson has to decide that he won't run again and he'll give us this power mm. that he tried for all his life. And his retirement is four years. You know, he died at the age of 64. Which is amazing. Uh, One thinks of him as being so much older than So that. much older, yeah. yes, exactly. Uh, is, a, is a terrible story. It's a terribly sad story to, uh, to me. The other thing, yes, there's a tremendous amount of material, but I want to get this all into one book because it's one arc. You know, it starts with Johnson beating Barry Goldwater in 1964 right. by what is still the largest plurality in the history of the United States. And he has this year or months of triumph where he passes the Voting Rights Act, Medicare, something like 20. Uh, education bills, mm. everything we think of about kids getting money to go to college and college construction today came out of Lyndon Johnson's education bill. Uh, he had so many things that he started, had started in this brief period. And then at the same time that he's, and actually the same week that he's passing the war on poverty bill, he's escalating the war in Vietnam for the first time. Uh, and there, the arc is down to a point at which he decides he can't run again. So I want to keep it all in one book. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I guess the 68 election, once he's out of it, is something that doesn't have to be front and center, that you don't have to tell in full, except I guess in terms of his relationship with Humphrey and those and and Bobby. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and I guess McCarthy. I guess he had some sort of relationship with uh, Gene McCarthy. Not, not much. Not much. <laughs> not much. Yeah, I can't think of two more different people in American uh, uh, politics. Um, the other, the uh, one other thing I want to ask you, and then I think we'll take some questions from the uh, audience. As you said, what you said to the Johnson Library, I'm not writing a book that's necessarily favorable or unfavorable to Johnson because you want to write an honest book and let the chips fall where they may. You're, you're, one of the things that also makes the, the cycle so great is that he's not good, he's not a, an unabashed hero or villain and there are all these shades of gray. But it is a cliche in, among, uh, and I hear it from editors, book editors all the time, biographers do tend to over a period of time, research, particularly in the research phase, start to either f 
fall in love or fall in hate with their subject. It's a very common syndrome. How um, do you guard, did you guard against that? How did you keep your balance? Well, it's nice of you to say that I did. No, you, you definitely, you definitely did. The books would not, the books would not be exciting to read, if 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 if, if the other were true. It, you know, it's like Dickens in a way. You know, yeah. one of the things that makes Dick, Dickens so great is that, in my view, anyway, is that that even the rogues have their great moments, yeah. and the sentimental characters will sometimes have their bad moments. But, but uh, yeah. anyway, but go well, on. Well, that's exactly, that's, you know, because with Johnson, it's not really, I don't think of it in terms of liking him or disliking him. It's more I'm in awe of him, because I'm interested in power. I'm interested in how you get things done. And with Johnson, you're constantly saying, wow, look, how he's doing this. You know, I didn't know you could do this. When he passes the Civil Rights Act of 1964, yeah. you can see in the Johnson Library, he, every day his assistants would give him a Senate tally sheet, which is a, you've seen them, they're long, narrow strips of paper. And down the middle are the names of their 96 senators. On each side is a blank line. And you check off which side the senator's coming down on. And these sheets are smudged. And I asked Johnson's secretary, what are, why are they so smudged? And they said, well, that was Lyndon Johnson's thumb. He would put the number center down, check mark or a number, and he wouldn't ever move his thumb down to the next line until he knew which way this guy was going to wow. vote. Or, and you know, you really see the vote changing day by day. You needed 67 votes then to break a filibuster. And the South so controlled the Senate that no filibuster had ever been broken on civil rights. No civil rights bill, no strong civil rights bill, meaningful civil had ever passed. And you say, this is impossible that he's going to get 67 votes. Look at all these votes. There are 22 Southern senators, and he's got 20 Republican Midwestern conservatives who don't want civil rights. There's no way in the world he's going to get 67 votes. And you watch him doing it, and now we can hear on the telephone tapes how he does it with each senator. And, and you say, this is political power. This is getting something done as no one else really has been able to do it. Mm. Mm. Well, let's take a few questions. Uh, back, back there. Oh, come to uh, that. Frank? I have trouble hearing what Paris should help me out. Oh, 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 oh. Thank you so much. Hi. I can listen to you all day. And I'm particularly interested in your, your interest in power. Yes. I was told by a very high city official, don't try to get the zoning laws changed, Eleanor. The real estate interests are too powerful. I've been going around to all the community boards talking about how we must change the zoning laws that the canyons of Wall Street are moving uptown, they were, the laws were not written in stone, they did not come down with Moses. Don't try to get things changed. The real estate interests are too powerful. They're ruling the city. The, bill, the city's getting darker and darker. Can you the answer the question? The question is, instead of going on the national, why not do something on the power in New York as it exists today? Well, I think, 
I think he's got his hands full. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I would much rather you finish the Johnson book. Um, we have other people who can do that. Yes. First of all, thank you both. Thank you, Frank Rich, for how you've enriched all of our lives in your various capacities. Thank you. Um, Mr. Cairo. Yes, ma'am. Uh, unless I missed it in your answers, we are all waiting expectantly for the next chapter of the Lyndon Johnson story. So if you could get, knowing that it has taken you a long time, thankfully, to complete what you've done, how much longer do we have to wait? <laughs> well, you're the second person to ask me that today. The first one was my poet. <laughs> I'm doing it as fast as I can. I know. Uh, <laughs> right. um, my second question is, there have been criticism of President Obama that he hasn't been more like Lyndon Johnson in exerting power. I'd be interested in your view of that. You know, he's not jawboning, he's not pointing his finger at the shorter person in the Senate to get things done. I'd be interested in your perspective without talking about, you know, the 21st century as to whether it's possible, as you said, to be that kind of power broker these days. Well, see, I think President Obama has accomplished a lot more than he's given credit for. <laughs> I see I don't have to go on with that, but I'll just say putting Giving health care, health insurance to 21 million people who didn't have it before, think what that means to mothers who don't have to take their sick children to the emergency room anymore, can go to a doctor. So I think in a lot of ways he's accomplished a lot more. In the answer to the second part of your question, you know, how do you do it today? How you do it changes from time to time. But there's always there's always ways of doing it if you're a political genius. Very few people come along like a Robert Moses or a Lyndon Johnson. Uh, that's why it's, I was able to do it through them because they were unique in what they accomplished. So if you could analyze how they did it when no one else could do it, then you would be adding something, I hoped, to our understanding of how power works. And, and wouldn't you agree that Take, taking as the argument that Obama has accomplished more than he's given credit for, by the way, which has often happened with presidents yes, that are later yes. revealed successful. It's not uh, viewed as successful. Um, if and when there's a Bob Caro decades from now who looks at Barack Obama, that person may find, if, if, if indeed he did accomplish important things, ways he did it that no way resemble, as the questioner said, this kind of exactly. LBJ, exactly. you know, yes. and, 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 and we always sort of reach for recent comparisons, just like Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan having an after-hours drink. Is that really how, that, that <laughs> I wonder, and you know, we sort of reach these cliches. It's much more complicated and sophisticated than people think the way power works. It's your book so illuminate. Yes. I've not read the Iliad, however, I have read Alexander Hamilton. I'll repeat it, I'll repeat it. <laughs> I've never read the Iliad, and I've read Alexander Hamilton and all your books on LBJ. Another author who I've read quite a bit of is Ron Chernow. 
My question is, when can we expect your hip-hop on either one? Uh, when, when, when will there be the hip-hop uh, musical LBJ? Uh, by the way, have you, have you seen Hamilton? Oh, yes. Did yeah. you like it? I thought Hamilton was wonderful. Yeah. I think it was wonderful what it's done for history. Yes, and what it's done for history is, is amazing. Um, yes. I've heard the power broker, and at some point in the 50s and so, Jane Jacobs was around, and I think they had very different visions of, yes. ci of the city, yes. and yet you don't write about uh, her in the power broker, and I thought it was, she was missing. Yes, she is missing. Yeah, uh, what happened was, the book, so, the book as you read it is 700,000 words. But the book that I wrote was a million fifty thousand words. That was not um, that was not a rough draft. That was a finished draft. But it was felt that it all had to go into one volume because, um, and um, we were cutting stuff faster and faster near the end. You know the amount of pages that were in the power broker that you didn't have the kind of binding. Pu publishers did not have the kind of binding. It, today it's called perfect binding. You can get more pages in. Whatever the number of pages is in the power broker, 1,300 and whatever, that's the maximum number that you could then have between the covers of a trade book. So we had to cut it, and they redesigned the book, my Kantenhoff did, so you, it's very readable, but you have a lot of words on the page. But we had to cut it to that length. And near the end, we were just cutting things that I've always been terribly sorry were cut. And among them was a chapter I wrote on Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs. You're quite right. It's, it's, uh, Why don't you have it published now, part two? <laughs> yes. Mr. Garrow, yes. I would just be interested to know what your thoughts are um, about Lady Bird during this time, because it sounds like it was scary in some ways, um, and what their relationship and how she supported Johnson. Well, of course, her, her relationship with Johnson is fascinating, you know, uh, fascinating. Uh, I'm glad, I'm always saying to Einar, I'm glad I don't have to write a biography of a woman because I don't understand. <laughs> uh, you know, Johnson treated her, as I wrote, just hor terribly in, in, from the time they were married in 1937, uh, if I remember, 36 till 1955 when he had his heart attack. I'm not just talking about the affairs, we, we'll just leave those aside. He would, he would insult her, you know, in public all the time, in the most demeaning ways. Like he would say, what a pretty dress, Nellie Connolly was John Connolly's wife. He said, what a pretty dress Nellie has on, why can't you ever wear pretty dresses, Lady Bird? That's a remark, you know. So he had a lot of remarks like that, and he would never allow Lady Bird to be part of his political life. When the discussions got serious, he'd always say, time for you to go to bed, Bird, and she'd have to leave the room. In 1955, when he's only 47 years old, Lyndon Johnson has this massive heart attack. Uh, he's only given a 50% chance of living. And from the time he gets out of the hospital to the end of his life, he treats her differently. And he once said, it's like Lyndon Johnson is a very poignant figure. And it's almost like he could never believe anyone really loved him. 
But he once said, when he was in the hospital, he was in the hospital for, I think, eight weeks. He, Lady Bird had a room, a, a hospital bed, a bed moved into his hospital room. And he said later, every time my hand moved on the sheet, I heard her feet hit the floor and come running. And he came out of the hospital. It's like he understands someone, fine, he finally understands someone loves him. And he starts to bring her into his life, into the businesses, the television stations, into politics. And he realizes, which is true, that she is this amazingly smart woman. I'm just doing a scene now. He's doing something. Uh, vis-a-vis -vis the presidency, I won't bore you with it and all that. And he's, he's done polling on Madison Avenue. And they come in with run, one results, and Lady Bird gives him another opinion. He says, the rest of you can take Madison Avenue, I'll take Bird. Bird is Bird. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a, a fascinating uh, story. Wow. Uh, well, as a the, woman, I'd love to see you write that one. <laughs> <laughs> What was the rhythm that you were aiming for in those lists? And did that include also with the prose? Were you trying to get a rhythm in the prose also? Yes, yes. Well, you know, I'm, but I'm alone in that. I actually have, with this interview that I've done this month with the Paris Review is the first time I've ever talked about this. Uh, I do feel, you know, when, when we talk about novels, we talk about mood, sense of place, rhythm. Uh, I've always felt that it's just as important for nonfiction writers to have these to have these concerns as it is for uh, novelists, and that if you want a book to endure, you have to write it in a way that it's going to speak to succeeding generations, and that means the writing has to. I don't say I succeed in doing this. I I, th I think you have to try to write it in a way that the writing will carry the same weight for generations who've never heard of Robert Moses say, or, uh, or the civil rights movement of the, of, of the 60s. So I, in there's, there's this one chapter which I talk about when Johnson is desperate in 1948. It's his last chance. He's going to be out of power. And he's way behind in the race for the Senate when he gets out of the hospital. And he, someone gives him the idea of campaigning around Texas in a helicopter because that will attract crowds in the small towns. They've never seen a helicopter. And he's so excited and so desperate that he's leaning out the side of the helicopter and whipping it with his, <laughs> with his, with his hat. So, so he said, this is such a great scene. You know, you can just, you can just describe what oh. the pilots saw and say, yeah, this is great. But you say, but you're writing about a desperate man. This isn't really about something funny like whipping a hell. That's only part of it. You're writing about desperation. How are you going? So I had, I have a lamp in my office that's accompanied me everywhere, and I put a card on it and I wrote on it, "Is there desperation on this page?" So I tried to make the rhythms of that chapter reflect the desperation. Fantastic, mm. fascinating. Well, this, we could go on forever. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.